Good morning, everybody. Hey, while you're sitting down, a couple quick updates on some format changes um, that we're making to our Sunday service. One of them you've already noticed, we started on time today. Did y'all catch that? We started right at 1030 for maybe the first time in two years. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. Um, when we came out of quarantine, if you could remember back that far, it feels like a million years ago, that was at a time where, where traffic had really slowed down getting into this building. The, the, a, a full foyer was making people nervous, um, taking temperatures, things like that, spacing everybody. It just took forever to get the service started. So we said, hey, we'll just start late. And late felt really good. And so it kind of like the, the, like the college student that got used to sleeping in all throughout the summer, and then the new semester starts, and they're still sleeping in, that's what we did. So now what we're going to do to try to honor your time, to start on time, to finish on time, we're going to just really do our very bestest to start at 1030. That's why you noticed what you did. Second format change is you've probably, if you've got little kiddos, you've been checking them in, you probably have noticed we've experimented a little bit by uh, checking in all the way up to 1045 with somebody there, and then we moved it to 1030 for a little while. We are moving it back to 1045, and this is what I mean when I say that. You can always check your kids in. There's no point at which you come up to the table and you're not able to check your kids in. Um, but whether we could have a volunteer there to man that post, we were putting a cutoff time on that, and there was a specific reason. We needed that person to be unanchored from that table to be able to mix around and serve their team. We needed that team leader to be free, right? But we get it. It's hard to get here on time. You can't find Junior's shoe. The car doesn't start. They've got the marathon going, so you have to find, like, the fifth alternate route just to get here. It, 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 Sundays happen, and we understand that. So the format change that we're making is we're going to have 1045 as that cutoff time. If we have the ability to have a volunteer there checking kids in past 1045, we'll do it. But we can't promise that we'll have somebody there past 1045 because, again, we need the freedom to detach that person from the table to be able to serve the rest of the team, right? And let, there might be a day coming where we have so many volunteers that we could have somebody there until Jesus comes. They could be checking in kids till 11:20, no problem, right? But what my friends who are pastors at lead churches of 2, 3 and 4,000 tell me, that day's never going to come, Luke, because we have volunteer issues. There's never going to be a waiting list on volunteers. So, here's here's my petition and my submission for all of us, right? If you have kids and you're checking them in, I want you to work really hard at aiming at 10:15 to 10:20, right? Not 10.35, but 10.15 to 10.20, that window. And here's why. There's three reasons, okay? One is it's good for you. It's good for you because you're checking your kids in, and it gives you the opportunity to high-five people, hug somebody's neck. I, I get it. It's all small talk, but small talk has value to it. It, it. it accomplishes something very different than, like, deep conversations for certain but, but small talk is a force amplifier when it comes to building relationships, not just deep but wide. So it's important, right? So one is it's for you. Two is it's for our leaders, as I've already explained. We, we are working to build something beautiful back there. You've heard me say it in partners meetings before. Legacy Church has three times the children of a church of our equivalent size and age. Three times. We have triple the kids of, of our twin church across the city, right? And you guys won't quit getting pregnant. So that's not, that's not going to go away. So we need, to, we need to help that as much as possible. We have more volunteers than most daycares have employees. What we're pulling off is beautiful and it's top-notch, but it does take some work. So we want to help them out. 
The, the third reason, honestly, it's better for your kids. It's better for your kids because they're not coming in 10, 12, 15 minutes late. If you check your kids in at 1043, they've already missed 13 minutes of what's going on. And so no one enjoys to back 50 or 60% of anything. It gives your child just a much, a much richer experience. And, and that's what we want. We want them to not kind of come in late and have a room full of kids and the teacher have to deal with that and your child have to deal with that. Listen, if you come late, Check your kids in. We're happy to have them checked in, right? I'm just saying if we're going to move our target, let's move it to 1015 to 1020, not 1030, because it does make a difference overall. If you have questions on that, you can email us at info at LegacyKnoxville.com, um, and we'll do the best we can to walk you through that. But that's just another format change that you, you'll probably see uh, moving forward. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in First Chronicles 29 today. 1 Chronicles 29. I know it's an exciting, it's your favorite book of the Bible, old 1 Chronicles. It's the most worn out pages, I'm sure, soaked with highlighter and tears from your last devotion. Not really. You probably didn't even know it was in your Bible, but you do have 1 and 2 Chronicles in your Bible. And it's going to be really helpful for us today. It's going to show us a real beautiful picture of who God is and what he's done for us and how that will affect the rest of your week. While you're turning there, I don't know if you knew this, but there is a sociological term for the study of memes. It's called memetics. It's the study of how memes are embedded in culture and how they actually drive culture. Uh, because memes are unique in the fact that they transfer information back and forth by way of analogy. Right? That's the nerd way of explaining it. If you're normal, you don't know how to explain what a meme is. You just know one when you see one, right? You're like, that's a meme, but you don't know why it's a meme or even what a meme is. But we love, we love them. They've been around for a long time. It's probably only been in the last seven to ten years that we've become artisans of the meme, and we can produce them so fast that we can't even absorb them all. But we laugh at them. We resonate with them. We trade them back and forth. I love getting texts with memes in it. One such meme that's recent that I'm much more fascinated with than the average one is the NPC, Right? If you're older than me, let me explain what that means. The NPC stands for non-playable character or non-player character, depending on who you ask. They're characters in a video game. NPCs are the characters that interact with your player that you are playing, yet they are run by the game program, so they're very uh, unidimensional. They're kind of awkward. If, if you're my age or older, think Doc Lewis in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, right? He says the same stuff. And it's, and it's on script, and it's, you, you know exactly when he's going to say it. I played that game so much when I was a kid, I would just talk in what I envisioned his voice to sound like right over the words because I knew exactly what he was going to say and when he was going to say it. Or if you play a sports game, you're playing tennis on the Wii. All the little heads, those little soulless bodies, all those heads that just kind of move back and forth to watch, watch the ball, and they all react at the same time, those are NPCs. Now, the more advanced games have NPCs that are far more intuitive and interactive than, than Doc Lewis was, but they're still limited. And experts say that these are the things that you can expect from an NPC. One is that they all have paths that they don't diverge from. It's true. Oftentimes, they just walk in circles. <laughs> they just walk in circles, usually waiting for you to show up. That's what an NPC in a game does. Another is that they have just a few catchphrases. That's it. It's a limited lexicon. They only say a few things. Another is that 
they can glitch and it could ruin the game. It could be awkward. And if you've ever owned a Nintendo, like the old school ones, constantly you're having to restart games because an NPC would glitch and you can't move your little guy forward. Another is that they act like a hive mind with other NPCs. This is especially true in sports games. Okay? Another is that they're oblivious to all that is going on around them. They're not connected to the real world. Not at all. They don't even understand. And that's the last one. They don't understand and they don't interact responsively with the wake living world. You can see where this is going, right? As far as a meme. An NPC is a real thing and it's also a meme describing a person who lives their life like a non-player character. Single dimensional, awkward, oblivious, predictable, unable to respond properly. Listen, if somebody calls you an NPC, they are not being kind to you. But I wonder how often we just feel like one. How often do you just feel like you're walking in circles, saying the same things, glitching, right? We can all feel like this. That's the question I want the Bible to answer today. What do we do with a life that seems like we're not really interacting with the living? What do we do with a life where it feels like we're just walking the same paths, doing what everybody else is doing? What do we do when our life is glitching? And I think David is going to be helpful as we finish this series today on the life of David because he is coming to his final words for us. These are among his last words. We don't actually know exactly what his last words. I'm pretty sure he didn't keel over and die right after what we're about to read. But these are some of the final sentences on the final pages of his final chapter. And and dying words just, they weigh more, don't they? I mean, have you ever imagined what you would say you knew you only had a few moments left and all your favorite people were around you. People typically think that. What would be my, if I only had a few few minutes of oxygen left, what would I say? How would I spend those words? I've been in the presence of people's last words before, before they died. It's never like the movies. It's never like TV at all, right? But those words that they do say, they just kind of hang in the air a little bit longer than normal words. And I think David spends his last words well. So let's look at 1 Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles, rather, 29. And we're going to just start in verse 1, and we're going to walk through a little bit of this passage together. We're not going to read the whole chapter. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. It says, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and experienced, or inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Let's pause just for a second right there. Solomon right now is a teenager. Nothing says you're in great hands like young and inexperienced teenagers going to be leading you from here on. This would have caused them great nervousness. They knew David had his issues, but the nation of Israel was in a golden age. Things were going well for them. The teenager probably has them a little bit nervous. But David uses his words to quickly get at what's most important to him, building a temple. A temple. It doesn't sound like something that somebody would spend their last words talking about, but he he wants to get to it fast. Verse 2, let's look at verse 2. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, 
besides great quantities of onyx and stones for settings, antinomy, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord. Okay, there's a depth of wealth here, just the gold alone. It's hard to track the value of all that stuff. I know people do the best they can to say, well, how much would that be in today's? We don't really know what, what kind of marble he was talking about, how much and all of that. But gold we do. I mean, if you look at the price of gold this week, this is about $8 billion in gold he's giving away of his own. This is his own net worth, right? When you add in all the other stuff, it's probably the majority of his net worth. This is a lifestyle-altering amount of money to give. And I'd expect nothing different from David, would you? Right? I mean, it, it totally makes sense that David would do something like this. Let me tell you what doesn't make sense, just as a cursory reading. Why does David provide all of the material and wealth and just not build it himself? Do you ever wonder that? Why is he stacking everything up over here, setting up an own LLC, putting money aside, hiring contractors and artisans? Why, why doesn't he just build it? You'd have to go back one chapter, stay where you're at. I'm just going to read the verse to you. It's in 28.3 because David's wondering the same thing. Why can't I just build this? And it says this, but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Isn't that interesting? God's the one that crafted him to be this man. Why would he not allow him to build the temple? You see, David is a king of war. Solomon will be a king of peace. Here's what this means. The temple is actually a symbol of the world that is to come. It's not yet. It's a symbol of the world that is to come, awaiting God's people. Okay? It's a world of no issue, a world of no injury. You're actually meant to look at the temple in the same way that we would look at Jesus' miracles. Not all of his miracles, but the majority of Jesus' miracles don't really suspend the natural order. They restore it. So whenever you see death reversed, sight regained, leprosy taken away, it's a glimpse of how God intended the cosmos to spin originally before there was a fall, before death and before decay crept into the picture. So just as much as God did not make a world of anxiety, did not make a world of depression, a, a world of isolation and death and decay, he also did not make a world of war. Solomon is going to be a man of peace. So he's going to be the one to build a symbol of peace to the world. This temple also is to be seen as a bridge between the presence of God and God's people. And so David, unable to build it because he is a man of blood, a man of war, because he's not able to, he does the next best thing. He assembles everything that is needed, all the tools, all the craftsmen, the artisan, the money, the supply, everything. And he actually does much more than this, more than giving his net worth, more than getting everything ready, he leads and urges his leaders to give generously to what we could easily call a building fund here. In fact, a lot of churches will actually use this to be the passage whenever they kick off a giving campaign. We're not doing that today, but it makes sense. It's a perfect passage for that, right? I would say that it's not less than about money, but it is more than about money, a passage like this, which is what we're going to zoom in on. 
In fact, let's just look at verse 6. Go to verse 6. Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly with the whole heart. They had offered freely to the Lord. David, the king, also rejoiced greatly. Again, there's no real way to calculate the value of what's going on in this day. It's safe to assume we're in the 12-figure range. That's a lot of money. Many, 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 many billions of dollars, not just for the construction of a temple like this, but for the continued operation for the ministry of the temple, to reach the poor, to reach the fatherless, on and on and on. But what's eye-catching isn't even the value to begin with. It's the posture of the heart of the giver. That's what's shocking about this. This is giving that was not shame-based or obligated in its feel. I mean, what David says is, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself unto the Lord? Who will do it willingly? And then later on it says, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. This is how giving is supposed to be. With a joyful, free, committed heart, not under this pressure of obligation or shame. That's how we're supposed to give. We're supposed to give to God what he has already given to us from a joyful place. Paul actually picks up the same theme later on. But after this moment, David gives what I think is probably the most climactic speech of his life. He gives this brief doctrinal statement on who God is. Some people call it a doxology. No matter what you call it, these words I think are among David's finest ever before he dies. Let's look at verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all the things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and it is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasant and uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. This is what he's saying. Everything is yours. You are beyond description. Anything we give you, you've given us first. Anything that we offer you, 
we received from you. We're just sojourners here. This isn't even our home. This is a picture here of undistracted devotion. He says, who will join me in consecrating ourselves? You know, there's a word we don't use very much, consecration, to consecrate oneself. It, it, it kind of has fallen out of our language. All it means is to just devote for special purpose to the Lord. We would use words like ordain or dedicate. That's all, that's all the word means. It means to follow without conditions. This is what he's driving at, to follow without conditions and to pursue God for no other reason than to get more God. To pursue God for one reason, to get more of him. Right? This is what he's driving his people towards. This is how he's filling his last words. Don't look at me, he says. Don't look at my son. The, the best thing for you as a people is for God to be close and for God to be thick. Let's get that temple built. We need to build this temple. And this temple is, as I said, God's bridge to his people. But it has as its centerpiece the ark. We talked about the ark already a few weeks ago, maybe several weeks ago. We're not going to go into detail on the ark today, right? Um, you could go back and listen to that if you want. But the ark of the covenant, if you're not familiar with it, it's just you know what it is. It's a wooden box the size of a beer cooler, right? It's not very big. It was covered in gold. It held things that were precious to God and God's people, like the Ten Commandments, symbols of how God took care of his people and led his people. It had a lid also covered in gold, had two big angels on the lid that faced each other, and then the area in between those angels was called the mercy seat, okay? That's the ark. Now, once a year, a high priest would get up and sacrifice a blameless, spotless animal and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Does that sound weird to you? Sprinkle blood? It's okay to just step back from it and go, that sounds kind of weird, right? So one day a year, this guy comes in with a robe on, kills an animal, and sprinkles blood on this golden box. Someone has to explain what all of this means, right? Blood just represents life in the Bible. Anytime you see blood in the Bible, it represents life. Here's, here's a fun fact. In most, if not all world religions, blood would symbolize life to a certain extent. So we do know this, and it would only be through one life traded for another that God would come close. When the blood is sprinkled on that mercy seat, it brings mercy to the person who sacrificed it. So there's a substitution, right? Justice properly falls on one to save the other, mercy. That's why it's called the mercy seat. Mercy is where we don't get what we do deserve. This is why it says in Hebrews, by the way, that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. So an animal would receive just punishment so that we could be aligned with God. But without getting in the weeds, if you were to zoom out, just think about it for a moment. In this time, when David is talking, and they haven't started the, the temple yet, but they're excited to start it, in the middle of God's bright cosmos, full of stars and galaxies and planets that we haven't even seen yet, the middle of it is this created place that we live called Earth today. And in the middle of this beautiful place that God built and said, it is good, he has his own people that he has selected unto himself. At this time, it would be the Jews, right? And in the middle of this nation would be the temple. And in the middle of this temple would be the ark, but, I mean, you know something that I know. You can't put God in a box, can you? You can't stick him in a wooden box. It doesn't matter how much gold you drip all over it. It doesn't matter how many priests walk around it. It doesn't matter how beautiful the temple is that it sits in. God will not be tied to a place or a method or a king like David or even Solomon. 
God will not be predicted, caged, materialized, tamed, ordered. You cannot contrive him on demand. This is why you find in your Bible, this is why when you read the Old Testament, it's a little confusing maybe how Uzzah, and this is what we looked at several weeks ago, could with a good intention touch the ark and then drop like a rag doll, dead, right on the spot for touching the ark. And yet the Philistines could get their hands all over it and then not die. What gives? Right? Or it's why Israel would take the ark into a battle and they would get a big win, right? I mean, just whoop everybody. But then they would take it out and even get a loss. What gives? God will not be controlled. God will not be commanded. No person, no method, no formula can bring God close to you, not even your behavior, right? Which is important for us, especially in the deep south, where we use our performance to conjure God, not an ark. But we will use our behavior to pull a lever to get God to do for us what we really want him to do for us. Friends, this is what's going on in your heart whenever you say, I have done all of this, I have done all of this, and you can't show up. You can't show up, Lord. I've done all of this. I've journaled like three times this year, Lord. I've shown up to like 66% of church services in the last nine months. Check that, three months. But I have shown up and I have volunteered and I found my Bible and I've thought about starting to, I have done all of this and you can't show up? Or even if you just amplify it. You mean to tell me, Lord, I go to seminary? I'd sell out of my big paying job and go to seminary to be a pastor and go and play into church and you don't show up. It's, it's this thing in our heart that says God is a machine and if I could just pull the lever correctly, he will react. And it's nothing more than just treating him as, as a, a voltage that we could just walk in and flip the switch and the lights come on. Like we can control him. It's the same thing that goes on in our hearts, by the way, that whenever we say, God, I've done all of this and you keep showing up. I mean, I've done all of this. I mean, have you seen my rap sheet? Have you seen the last week? What I have and haven't done and you still show up? You still love me? It's the same exact thing. It's the pendulum that swung all the way to the opposite side. We either feel entitled or we feel shamed based on how we behave according to our own standards, of course. But just as people would use the ark back then as some sort of lucky rabbit's foot, we use our behavior today to get the genie to pop out of the lamp and then just grant us our wishes. And like I said, this treats God as a machine, not a person. But nobody pursues a machine to just enjoy the machine more. You only pursue a machine because it pulls out a product that serves you well in that moment. What David is doing here is he's pushing his people to really chase after and pursue and hunt down the presence of God for one reason, to get more God. To get more God and then to not stop. He's leading them to consecrate themselves. To consecrate themselves. And what this requires is an intensity in our walks. It requires a risk, right? It does bring adventure in life, though. It's the opposite of being an NPC. It's the opposite of wandering around Saying the same thing all the time. The same thing everybody else is doing as we do the same thing everybody else is doing. Where, we, where we're living, but we're not really living. Wake up, we struggle through the day, we daydream of better days, we go to bed, we start over the next day. I think it's a fitting picture for the world, but I think it's a fitting picture for much of the church. Where many of us can be so dedicated, consecrated, just not to the Lord. 
We could be ordained in different directions, right? Wholehearted. We're just wholeheartedly the wrong thing. I think most of us in this room are fine to follow God. I think where it gets hard is it's hard to follow God with no conditions put on it. We want boxes checked before we risk ourselves upon the Lord. This is what those disciples wanted in Matthew 8. Don't turn there now, but if you go back on your own and read about these couple guys that come up to Jesus virtually saying, I want to follow you. I want to give you my everything. Jesus says to the first one, yo, listen, there's no place to lay your head. Like, you need to know, if you follow me, well, I don't know what our address is. If you're looking for, like, security, a 401K, that type of thing, you will not find that with me. And, and then he, he doesn't tell the guy he can't follow him. He just tells him what it's going to cost. Here's, here's a condition. And this guy turns around and walks off. Next guy comes up. I want to take care of business at home. I need to make sure that everything is set up so that I am independently wealthy, and then I will risk myself upon you. And that's why Jesus says, let the world take care of the world. Now you got two guys walking away from Christ. Why? Because they could not follow without conditions. It was, Lord, I want to follow you just as long as fill in the blank. Just as long as you don't drop me here. Oh, man. We need him to promise us certain things. We just don't want to unself ourselves. Friend, listen, there, there is so much more God for us to discover than we're really willing to discover, isn't there? Isn't there just so much good? Don't you even sense it sometimes? Sometimes you, you'll, you'll catch me thanking the Lord because he took some storm clouds away, um, being thankful because I had some maybe depressive thoughts or some anxiety that was just kind of pulled away. I could thank him. Or I could thank him for bringing something beautiful into my life that puts a smile on my face. But isn't it just so easy to thank him and to just let that be enough, to just be satisfied in that one thing he did? There is so much more. There's so much more God to discover, to experience, to delight in, to savor. But we are so often settling. I mean, could you use more? I could use more. I could use more. I stop short. I settle so much. I know there's more God to be experienced. I think I'm talking to a room that has had seasons where you have had such a joyful moment, season maybe, with the Lord, that the fingers just easily let go of this world and all of its trophies. It's just so easy. It's like second nature. You know, consecration is not an event as much as a series of events. Maybe billions. I don't even think it's something we do every day. It's probably something we do every hour where we consecrate ourselves, we dedicate ourselves. As a teen, <clears throat> now this is a teen, when I'm my younger, younger teen years, I was in a traditional church with my parents, and they had this thing on the tail end of every single service called rededication. Anyone ever hear? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of rededication, just so I knew who I'm talking about. More than I thought. Welcome to the South. So if you're not familiar with what rededication is, it is your opportunity to go down and, as I shake, say, shake the etch-a-sketch at the end of every sermon. And it would happen at the tail end of any sermon, and it didn't matter what the sermon was that day, right? And whenever the pastor was done, the piano player would start belting out that song, um, Just As I Am, just as, yeah, I won't sing it. You can look it up on your own. Just As I Am, which has, fun fact, 39 stanzas to it. or That's what it felt like. It went on and on and on. It had to be long because people needed time to muster up the courage 
to step out of the pew and make their way down to the front to either pray with the pastor or just kind of kneel somewhere in the vicinity and what? Dedicate their life. Dedicate their life. And because I didn't love Jesus back then, I'd always, I know I was supposed to have my eyes closed, but I would always kind of look, see who's going down there? Who's going down there? Who should be going down there, right? And I was always a little bit shocked because sometimes it's the same people going down to the front over and over again. And I would think even as a kid, as a moron kid, I would think, something's not working, friend. If you're having to get rededicated every single week, you're probably doing something wrong because we're all sitting down and you keep going forward every single week. Rededication. I think David would have called it re-consecration, right? I mean, they weren't becoming Christians repeatedly. And they were just re-consecrating themselves. Lord, I give you my strength, my soul, my mind, my strength. You have all of me because I want all of you. You have all of me. I know I said it last week. I know I said it this morning. But I got to say it again. You have all of me because I want all of you. Some of us, we feel dry today. Our behavior has been a D minus when graded on a curve, right? We feel like we're walking in circles, saying the same dumb stuff, doing the same dumb stuff, not really living. We're just an NPC. And you might even be resolved in this moment that what you really need is a truly deep, visceral, guttural, emotional moment with the Lord, that that would change everything. I'd like to caution you and then encourage you on this, okay? Let's look at the last little bit of the passage. Go to verse 18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. We'll stop there. Solomon doesn't pull that off, does he? See, Solomon's also not very good at wholehearting. I mean, spoiler alert, he ends up just as bad as his dad. He's a mess. Just like David, just like me. He doesn't pull it off. In fact, if you read your Bible in Ezekiel, I can't remember which chapter, somewhere between 8 and 11, I think, there's a vision that God gives Ezekiel of God just saying, you know what, I'm just leaving the temple and just walks right out of the temple, the glory of the Lord, to not return to that place. Today, the temple is just some broken blocks and some dust, maybe an artist's rendition in the back of your study Bible. That's all it is. Here's the big idea. Nobody is wholly consecrated. Nobody is totally devoted to God. Nobody. Not one of us. Not David, not his son, not his leaders, not you, not me. Paul says in Romans 3 that we don't even seek for God. We don't even look for him. So are we stuck? Walking in circles? Quite the opposite. We don't seek him, but he seeks us. He comes close to us as our better temple. Jesus is a refined, more beautified version of the temple. God's true presence on earth. A true bridge between the Father and his people. This is why he says in John 2, when, and this was thrown back in his face whenever he was being prosecuted, tear down or tear this down, referring to the temple, in three days and I will raise it up again. And they thought, you can't tear that down. Yo, that thing is covered in gold. 
We, we spend a lot for that. That's like, that's like the pride of our nation. You're going to tear it down and we're going to raise it back up in three days. It doesn't even make any sense. And he wasn't talking about that room that didn't have God's presence anymore. He's talking about his own body. And sure enough, he did. Sure enough, if he didn't do that. Isn't that the heartbeat of the gospel story? That we tore him down, tore that temple down, and it was resurrected in three days. Jesus, the only wholehearted, consecrated man, the true man of peace, what the temple was always meant to be. And Jesus was never single-dimensional with us or awkward. He was never predictable, never unable to respond, never walking in circles. And although he was wholehearted, he didn't get the face of God to get more of the Father. He got the Father's back. Why? So that you and I could have the Father's face. I mean, that's, that's the whole picture of what's going on. Jesus' blood was not just sprinkled on the mercy seat. He was mercy to you and me as he bled out on the ground in front of criminals. He is the ultimate man of peace, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. So no, we're not stuck. Not by a long shot. We're liberated. We're liberated. Certainly God left that temple. Right? Ezekiel was right. That really happened. And then Christ, the very Spirit of God before us. And then if you read Acts, the Spirit of God comes into what? Our church. God with us. Our church. It's beautiful. We're far from stuck. So what do we do then? How do we move forward? We do the same thing that David is leading his leaders to do. That's real good advice. Consecrate ourselves. Ordain ourselves. Dedicate ourselves with no conditions. For one reason, chase down God to get more God to get more of him, to experience him more, to discover him more, to savor and delight in him more. Now, in this passage, the leaders join David in the giving of their money. Now, I already said this is not a sermon about money, even though it's, it's got a lot to say about money. It's not, that's not the main thrust of it. But I think that money in this teaches you and me a pretty valuable lesson. You can give money without dedicating your life, but you cannot dedicate your life without giving money. Okay? You can't. People do it all the time. People are going to do it this morning all over our, our metro area. They're going to give a lot of money, and they're going to do so with an undedicated life. But you cannot dedicate your life, consecrate your life, without it touching your money. And, and I'll add to this time. Same thing with your time. I'll add to it your talents, your imaginations, your life goals. You cannot consecrate yourself without emptying yourself. It's impossible. Ask the two disciples doing the sad walk away from Jesus. If you were to walk up on them and say, hey, what happened? I thought you were going to follow Jesus. Well, I mean, I, there was some stuff I want to do, you know. The business of a consecrated life is wholehearted devotion with no conditions. This is why when you handle your finances, that's nothing short of a spiritual matter. right? That's why when you handle your calendar... And you budget your time, which is the same thing as money. That's nothing short of a spiritual matter. Let me ask you, what questions or conditions do you put on Christ before you risk yourself into a disciple's life? What is it? What do you require from him? Where is it that you say, I will follow you, comma, just as long as you fill in the blank? What is that? Whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is, that's the lever you're looking to pull to get something out of a machine. That requires repentance. It it requires a turned heart. I'm not going to say anything the Bible's not saying right now. We, We must consecrate ourselves. 
must ordain. We must dedicate ourselves. And it means touching every aspect of who we are as people. Our time, talent, treasure, imaginations, goals, our everything. There's going to be a lot of room for us to repent in this today. And let me just say, if you're here and you're far from Jesus, or you're not sure where you are with Jesus, let me just say something that I've already said. Without Jesus, you're unable to really devote anything to God. I mean, think of your money. David is saying here, the money we're giving you, it's money you've given us. That's the way it is with everything, even faith. If you find yourself as a person saying, I think I trust Jesus now. I think I have faith that Jesus is the only way. What you need to know is even that faith was a gift to you. You didn't conjure that up either. You, you didn't smart your way to this position of saying, you know what? I'm pretty smart now. I've done a good survey of Christianity. I've surveyed other religions. I've had my big questions asked. I think I've finally gotten smart enough to go ahead and choose. That's not how it happened, friend. If you're able to trust in Christ, it's because he gave you the faith to do it. That's why the Bible says that faith is a gift. And maybe that's happening to you today. You would know because you're starting to sense a desire to change, a dissatisfaction with walking in circles, a desire to turn your back on a life of sin, a resolve that Jesus is your only way. And friend, if that's you, I want to talk to you this morning. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or come forward. No one's playing just as I am. Because the, the real fact is, is God's already working in your life. He's already changing you. He's already giving you a heart that feels. And this is really good news. 